0: Chapter eight of the Boy Scouts on Swift River by Thornton W. Burgess. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter eight Walter's Queer Porcupine. The next morning, Woodhull ordered all hands out at sunrise. There was some good-natured grumbling, especially on the part of Walter and Hal, who were so stiff and sore from the effects of their tumble the day before that it was with difficulty they could suppress a grunt or groan every time they moved. Plympton, on the contrary, seemed greatly refreshed by his night's sleep and could not forego a grin at the plight of his companions. Woodhall rallied them unmercifully. "'I should think that you were the tenderfeet of this outfit,' he said, giving Plympton a covert wink. "'A pretty pair of first-class scouts you are, done up by half a day's paddle and one little carry. What do you expect to do when we strike it really rough?' The two victims could do nothing but grin foolishly and shake their fists at Lewis when his back was turned, for they more than half suspected that he had guessed their secret. Walter soon had breakfast ready. Oatmeal, cocoa, bacon, and fried potatoes, to which all did full justice. The potatoes were the very ones which had so aroused Hal's scorn when Walter had bought them in the New York supply house, and Walter slyly reminded him of this when Hal passed his plate for a second helping i take it all back and then some replied hal it didn't seem to me that those dried chips could ever be fit to put in my stomach let alone taste as good as they do what's the secret there isn't any secret i soak them overnight that's all walter replied breakfast disposed of the tents and duffel were soon packed the canteens filled from the spring and they were off once more action and the warmth of the sun soon relieved the stiffened muscles and walter and hal forgot their misery for the first hour or two the portage of lonesome pond was soon passed and from this point on everything was new and strange to all four of the young voyagers the forest thickened and there was a delightful sense of mystery as if they were in very truth explorers searching out a new land to be sure there was ever the mute testimony to the devastating rule of the lumbermen and Woodhall kept spread before him a map, showing every twist and turn of the river and every portage. Still it was easy to forget or to ignore these things and to feel an exhilaration, a sense of adventure that made the pulse quicken. The river abated none of its swiftness. At times in midstream the surface appeared so calm and untroubled that it was hard to believe that it was less placid than a quiet woodland pond but a glance shoreward at the swirling eddy around the end of a stranded log dispelled the illusion and impressed on the young adventurers a sense of the resistless force which would brook no check in its rush to the sea. Then again it would break into ripples as it broadened and swept over rocky shallows, here and there a rock showing above the surface. At such times a river appeared to race madly, although in truth it moved no faster than before. Six miles below Lonesome Pond Portage they caught the deep, sullen roar of rapids again, and a few minutes later sighted a little opening in the forest on the right bank, which Lewis said was the beginning of another portage. To the disappointment of Walter and Hal, who were hungry for excitement, they did not even enter the white water, but grounded the canoes on a little beach just above. As on the day previous, Woodhall led the way with pack and canoe, but this time there was no mad effort on the part of walter and hal to keep up with him nor did they disdain his advice to lighten their loads and leave more for the second trip across as it was the pack seemed doubly heavy to their strained shoulders these confounded straps didn't cut this way yesterday growled walter as he vainly strove to shift his burden to a more comfortable position hal grinned i don't hear sister squealing he muttered so that plimpton could not hear Walter made a grimace. "'Fishing doesn't make sore shoulders,' he replied sententiously, referring to the fact that Sister had made but one trip over the carry the day previously. It was said good-naturedly. Nevertheless, it served to re-arouse in both boys the feeling that Plimpton had been favored at their expense, and to increase the suspicion that favoritism was being shown. Such a feeling feeds on trifles. It is like a noxious weed and simply thrives on nothing.' Walter and Hal began to count the number of times Plimpton rested on the trail, and to express their scorn for the seeming weakness by doggedly plunging ahead when their own aching backs were instantly demanding relief. The result was that they reached the end of the mile carry first, but completely fagged out, while Plimpton, though tired, was far the freshest of the three, and despite his smaller size and inferior strength had brought as heavy a load as the others. Woodhall was waiting for them. "'Did any of you fellows here or see anything on the top of the ridge as you came over?' he asked. "'No, but I felt something,' Walter replied ruefully, rubbing his shoulders. Lewis smiled. "'I'm afraid that you allowed your sense of feeling to dull your other senses. "'And you know that is poor Woodcraft,' said he. "'Now I heard something. "'But I couldn't see because I was under the canoe. "'Something jumped off in the young to one side of the trail.' "'It may have been a deer, but if it was, it must have been a mighty big buck. "'It sounded heavy enough for a bear.' "'All three boys pricked up their ears at the word bear. "'Do you suppose it really was a bear, Lewis?' Hal asked eagerly. "'What if he had come bolting out after us when we had those packs on our backs?' exclaimed Walter, having a sudden and very vivid recollection of his meeting with the bear at Bucksby's Tree the year previous. Woodhull laughed i guess you wouldn't have made as good time as you did last time walt the odds would have been with the bear however i don't think you need be worried on the return trip a bear is too smart and pussyfooted to make any such noise as i heard unless you come right on to it unexpectedly otherwise the brute will sneak away through the thickest brush without making a sound big as it is as for bolting out at us, no sane bear that lives in these parts unless it were a she with cubs that thought that they were in danger would dream of such a thing. Come on now and let's get this carry made. Woodhull started up the back trail with Plimpton trailing him. Hal waited while Walter dug down into his pack for his camera. For if there was a chance they might jump a deer either going or coming, Walter wanted to be prepared to get a snap. Oh, you Lewis, shouted Hal, Woodhall paused and turned. If you see that bear, get Sister to put some salt on his tail so that Walt can photograph him. Woodhall and Plimpton laughed, and turning vanished into the thick second growth which lined the trail. Walter was ready in a few minutes, and the two boys hit up the pace to catch up with their comrades. They were about halfway over the ridge when both stopped abruptly. Did you hear that? whispered Hal. Walter nodded. They stood holding their breath. Not a sound was to be heard save the drumming of their hearts. Then they heard it again. A slight rustling of dead leaves off to their right. In vain they peered into the thicket. The young saplings grew so closely that they could see but a few feet among them. "Pooh," said Walter, after listening a moment more. No big animal made that little noise. Probably it's a porcupine. Do you suppose it is? Hal asked eagerly do you know i've never seen one wild do you suppose we can find him if we go in there easiest thing you ever knew responded walter with a superiority of experience you stay here and i'll go in and drive him out to you then when we get him out here in the sun we'll photograph him stepping cautiously walter threaded his way among the young moosewood and maples in the direction from which the sound had come he had gone perhaps twenty yards when he paused abruptly with that indescribable feeling of being watched he had heard nothing not the faintest sound yet he felt himself to be in the immediate presence of some living thing watching him itself unseen a queer feeling of chilliness crept up his spine and his skin prickled still he held his ground and presently in the gloom of the thick growth directly in front of him a shape gradually took form To his startled eyes it seemed as big as an elephant. Gradually, as he grew more accustomed to the dim light, he made out an ungainly animal which stood as high as a horse and was staring at him steadily and unwinking. There was no mistaking the great spreading antlers that crowned the unshapely head. It was a bull moose. For perhaps a full minute the boy and the animal stared at each other. Then Hal, growing impatient, called. Walter emitted a low whistle, and Hal, understanding the signal, cautiously joined him. "'What is it?' he whispered, his eyes not yet adjusted to the dim light. Suddenly he, too, made out the great hulking shape of the moose. "'Oh, my glory!' he exclaimed under his breath, gripping Walter by one arm. And so they stood, the two boys and the king of the forest, trying to stare each other out of countenance. And it was a moose who succeeded— the excitement of their find gave way to a feeling of uneasiness on the part of the boys it was disconcerting to say the least to be stared at so unwinkingly in the uncertain light the animal looked bigger than he really was and this effect was not decreased by their excited imaginations besides the moose was not behaving according to moose ethics as laid down in the stories and natural histories which they had read according to these he should have vanished silently in the first discovery of their presence unless angered by a wound, and this was hardly likely, the hunting season having not yet begun. But there he stood with no apparent fear. Instead, something very like this crept over the two boys, as by one impulse they began to cautiously back out. Still the moose stood like a graven image, and it was with something very like a sigh of relief that the two youngsters once more stepped into the sunlight of the open trail. There they lost no time in making toward the other end, "'Wouldn't it have been great if he had been out in the open where I could have photographed him?' panted Walter. Just then a noise behind them caught their attention. They turned to find the moose standing in the trail looking after them. "'There's your chance,' cried Hal. "'He's rather far off for a good portrait, but judging by the way he acts, he'll stay for you to go as close as you like.' "'Thanks. I'm quite near enough to suit me,' replied Walter, preparing to take a snap from where they stood.' Then, to his chagrin, he discovered that he had neglected to put a new film pack after making the last exposure the day before. To say that the two boys were disappointed would be putting it mildly. A photograph of a wild moose would have been a souvenir of their trip beyond their wildest hopes, for moose were rare in this section, and here was the opportunity missed through negligence of the first rule of scoutcraft to be prepared. In disgust, Hal picked up a stone and threw it in the direction of the ungainly beast. It rolled almost to his feet, and still he showed no inclination to leave. "'Say, if he isn't any more afraid of us than that, I guess it's up to us to at least be respectful to him,' said Hal. "'I move that we put a little more distance between him and us.' The boys hurried on excitedly discussing their strange experience and bemoaning the fact that they had no photograph wherewith to back up their story. No one will believe us, for who ever heard of a moose acting that way? Lewis will laugh at us and kid us all the rest of the trip if we tell him about it, grumbled Hal. Then, at a startling thought, he grabbed Walter. Say, he gasped, we've got to come back over this trail. Walter nodded uneasily. I've been thinking of that, he replied, supposing he takes a notion to be ugly. An ugly moose is worse than an ugly bear. There isn't a tree up there in the ridge big enough for anything but a squirrel to climb. Besides, we'll be loaded down. A fat chance we'd have if he took it into his head to be funny. I guess we'll have to tell Lewis about it. They soon came in sight of the end of the carry where Lewis and Plimpton were waiting for them. What have you fellows been doing, taking a nap on the way? shouted Woodhull as they came in sight. Or putting salt on the bear's tail? added Plimpton. Neither, replied Walter. "'But just the same we found your bear, Lewis.' "'The Dickens you did. "'Why didn't you bring him along? "'He might have conceded to carry your packs over for you,' "'said Woodhall banteringly. "'It's a moose,' said Hal. "'Better still,' laughed Lewis. "'We could harness him to the canoe "'and drag the whole business over. "'Quit your kidding, Lewis,' Walter broke in. "'I tell you there's a bull moose up there on the bridge. "'Or was a few minutes ago. "'He's as big as a house.' Woodhull walked over to Walter and took one wrist in his left hand while he placed his right hand on Walter's forehead. "'Face flushed, head hot and pulse above normal, a case of incipient brain fever induced by indigestion. "'We'll have to change cooks,' he said with a gravely professional air. Walter joined in the laugh that followed, but as soon as it had subsided he reiterated his statement and Hal backed him up. "'Come over to the canoe and sit down, son.' "'Now tell us about it,' Lewis commanded. Walter obeyed and told rapidly and briefly the details of the experience on the ridge, Hal corroborating the story. Woodhull listened gravely. At first a keen observer might have seen in his eyes a glint of amused incredulity. This gave way to a look of puzzled doubt. If it had been either of the others to tell such a cock-and-bull story, he would have laid it to an over-excited imagination which made a moose out of a deer.' but it was walter a boy who had won many points for his tribe at woodcraft camp by his powers of close observation who had served as novitiate in the deep woods and of whom big jim the guide had said his nerves are getting most as steady as his eyes he's a natural-born woodsman there was no doubt that the boy was in earnest and that he believed that he had seen just what he said he had seen over against this was the fact that the moose in that section were so rare as to make the seeing of one an event even to a professional guide. And then whoever had heard of a sane moose acting as the boys insisted this one had. Was he bigger than that big buck you saw when you made that trip with Big Jim, the one he called the King of Lonesome Pond? Asked Lewis as Walter finished. Walter looked up quickly and read the doubt in Woodhull's face. Say, Lewis, he began hotly, Don't you suppose I know a moose from a deer? Do you think— His jaw suddenly dropped. His eyes grew round with surprise as slowly he raised one hand and pointed up the trail. As by common impulse his companions turned to look, there, shuffling down from the ridge in leisurely fashion, came the bull moose. End of chapter 8